Hello out there to all you uh, Brooklyn folk. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And somebody who does such a great job from a literal perspective of getting us in the atmosphere of that era from uh, all the way back from when the Dodgers uh, were incepted to when they left in 1957, and that's Pierre Golenbach, who wrote Bums, an oral history of the Brooklyn Dodgers. Peter, it's so fantastic to have you on today. It's, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much, Sam. So as I was telling you uh, just before, where we always like to start with our first guests, the first time they've been on here, is before we get into the book and the Dodgers themselves, what got you? What got you into baseball, and what is your general personal history? Where, where do you come from, Peter? <laughs> well, I grew up in Stamford, Connecticut, and I was born. Um, I actually was born in Manhattan, but I was born with the baseball gene. I mean, there's no real other explanation for it. Um, the first memory that I have in in uh, just about in life was Willie Mays's catch of the Vic Wirtz hit in the 1954 World Series. I mean, that's that's the first thing that I remember in my life, which is so. So odd do you enough. do you remember that? Do you remember that from being in the stands, or do you remember that? No, just from I remember. No, I was uh, you know I was like you know what seven years old. I watched it on television. Yeah. No, I was watching and sitting in the den watching the thing on television, and 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 you know all these years later, it's re- literally the first thing that I can remember in life. Huh? I know. That's, that's Weird. amazing, though. Yeah, no, that's that's yeah. amazing. That that like baseball, you can't, you don't seem to be able to remember anything before that Willie Mays moment when you were seven years old, because right. you know my memory goes back. My memory, like, I, I remember something specifically from when I was two. I even have certain memories throughout being three. But I, I, I don't even think I have a photographic memory. I love well, the way that just baseball ties it back for you. Well, it, it does. I mean, you know, Roger Kahn, for instance, we, we would have a conversation, and ten years later I would say something, and he would say, do you remember when you said blah, 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 blah? And I would look at him like he was crazy. It's like, no, I don't remember that. But he had one of those memories. He had a photographic memory. And if you said something to him, he never forgot it. I mean, that was part of mm. part of his brilliance in his writing. You know, of course, he wrote The Boys of Summer, uh, which was a spectacular, spectacular book. But my connection to Brooklyn really began when I was 10 years old. My uncle Justin Golenbach was Jackie Robinson's attorney. And he called up one day Mm. and said, would you like to go to the World Series? This was the 1956 World Series. And, of course, I, you know, it's something that I would cherish. And so we went, which I thought interesting because he didn't take his own son. He took me. Uh, But uh, after the game, this was the game just prior to Don Larson's perfect game, uh, we went down. He had to talk to Jackie Robinson about something legal having to do with Jackie moving to Stamford, Connecticut. And so I got to go down to the clubhouse with him where I shook hands with the largest person I can ever remember in my entire life. 
and that was Jackie Robinson. And uh, it was something that I never, ever, ever forgot. Uh, I had two heroes in my life. One was Jackie, and the other was Mickey Mantle, of course, uh, from Stamford, Connecticut. I was a Yankee fan, and uh, as a Yankee fan, of course, you know, uh, we won a lot of pennants, and uh, except for one time, beat the Brooklyn Dodgers almost every time in the World Series. Um, but, um, but, but you know, when I was a senior at Dartmouth, my my senior history paper was on Jackie Robinson, uh, and and it, I often thought that when I wrote this book somewhere in the early '80s, that Jackie never ever ever got the position in American history that he deserved. In other words, as far as I was concerned, his making, his coming to the Brooklyn Dodgers and and uh, breaking the color barrier was the start of the civil rights movement. Without Jackie Robinson coming to the Dodgers, and being as unbelievably successful as he was in the face of so much opposition. And if you see the movie 42, you see that opposition. I mean, they wanted this guy dead for crying out loud. And in the face of that, he was rookie of the year. At one time, he was the MVP. He led the Dodgers to championships in 47, 49 uh, 52, 53, 55, and 56. I mean, he was, as far as I'm concerned, the most important American athlete. He was one, Babe Ruth was two, Billie Jean King was three, Muhammad Ali was four. Uh, I taught a course at US, uh, USF here in, in St. Petersburg, uh, sports and American culture, and we talked about all of that. Uh, it's it, you know it, I love for one that Jackie uh, stayed within the uh, the city because I know that Jackie was uh, I believe that's where he resided. I'm not sure when he started living in Stamford, Connecticut, but in right terms he lived of business, he lived in you know, he, he, if, if I remember correctly, I believe he lived in Brooklyn. Um, he may have lived in, in right, but he had he had some he had a house in Stanford, correct? He had a home. Oh, he had a home in Stanford. Right. It was an entirely there were only white people in that house, entire in that in that whole area. He was the first African American <laughs> to move into that area, and boy, there was howling, howling going on huh. when it happened. Um, so, so that's but, that's a good place to go down. Just as as somebody who is familiar with Stanford and, and like you're talking about in terms of howling, what, let let let's maybe think like you know a lot of times uh, some of the racial strife gets pushed off uh, on, on the southern narrative. Um, however, a lot of the uh, you you could say that in terms of the north a lot of it kind of goes under the radar. It kind of goes underground, the racism that is instilled within our area. So it, it, I, I, where you were going, if you can continue to discuss that in terms of Stanford, oh, I'd be happy to. and Jackie in, in, Robinson in the, moving there. Sure. In the 1950s, the North was as segregated as the South. I mean, in New York City, for instance, the African-Americans lived in Harlem. 
You know, they didn't live on Fifth Avenue. They lived up in Harlem. Uh, in Stanford, the African-Americans lived on the South Side. You know, they, 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 they did not live in the Long Ridge, you know, rich white people's community. Uh, Jackie, of course, who was a, you know, well-paid, very famous ball player, had the money to move into this home off of Long Ridge Road. And by gosh, he was going to do it because that's the kind of guy he was. Uh, and at first, there was howling. And then, of course, they got to know him and see what a terrific person he was, and the howling stopped, and he became a coveted, you know, wonderful neighbor. And people loved him. How must that be for uh, somebody like Jackie uh, and just any black person who gets opposition like that just because of the color of his skin, but then everybody quote-unquote comes around like it still seems like like if you're putting yourself in that person's shoes what it must be like on the other side of that once they start treating you nice oh yeah i mean it's it 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 can never be easy when you're an african-american it's just not easy it's just not easy at all i mean look at the country right now for crying out loud Look what the Republicans are trying to do to the African-Americans to keep them from voting. Right now they're trying to get rid of uh, um, affirmative action in the colleges. Uh, they're, they're, they're trying to do everything they can to, to roll back the civil rights that we've accomplished in the last 75 years. I mean, they, they, they hated it when we had the Civil Rights Act. They hated it in this country when they, uh, when they desegregated the schools, for crying out loud. I mean, the opposition to African-Americans in this country, uh, I mean, it's, it's better now than it was in 1954. But, you know, you see, you see what the Republicans are doing right now. And if you're an African-American, you can't be happy about it. You know, it's, it's also interesting the way politics have gone and the way politics were back in Jackie's day. You know, considering that even though Jackie was very much a part of the civil rights in the 60s, he was also a Republican. And it's fascinating the way uh, everything ends up moving. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny that he was a Republican. Um, he always he had a conversation with John Kennedy before Kennedy ran against Nixon in the 1960 election. And it was clear to Jackie that John Kennedy knew no African-Americans. And that turned him off. I think as, as the years went along, he began to see Nixon's true colors. And I have a feeling, you know, he, he, he began to choose the side of, you know, Martin Luther King and of, you know, the civil rights movement, which was much more, well, you know, democratically it, it, it is. pushed than, than Republicans. And it, it, it is interesting, um, you know, uh, bittersweet, bitter, uh, just bitter, really, that yeah, Jackie died. Right. Uh, that that Jackie died in 1972, right in the midst midst of all of the turmoil within the Republican rankings from all the way up top. Mm-hmm. He certainly did. Um, he did. Jackie so, was 53. So, Jackie was 53 years old. He looked like he was 75, uh, 80. I mean, within the span of a few months, we lost Gil Hodges and Jackie Robinson from mm -hmm. the infield. 
of the Brooklyn yeah. Dodgers, and yes. both at a, both at a very young age. Yes, I know. So look, uh, it's not easy. So, you know, I'm, I'm talking to I'm talking to Brooklyn Dodger fans, and I don't have to tell you it's not easy in 2022 to talk about the Brooklyn Dodgers. You know, the way that everybody who rooted for this wonderful team was absolutely stabbed in the back when O'Malley decided to go for the money and to leave behind uh, a Brooklyn that had that was uh, teeming at the moment with African-Americans as they were flooding into the city as the whites were fleeing to the suburbs of Long Island, Connecticut, and New Jersey. You know, that's why he left. And yeah. he took Stoneham and, with him. And, uh, you know, Stoneham, Stoneham right. uh, who owned the Giants, uh, they were there in Harlem. Uh, Stoneham I interviewed um, for, I, I think it was the Bums book, uh, told me that he had every intention of going to Minnesota. Uh, if, yeah. if O'Malley hadn't called him and said, hey, I'm going to L.A., why don't you go to San Francisco? Uh, Stoneham, uh, he saw the white flight as well. And he wanted to go to a community that was whiter than Harlem, where the Polograms was, and he was headed to Minnesota. Well, and and that's the thing too is that that neighborhood had been uh, traditionally black more longer than the neighborhood that had been uh, around Ebbets Field. Uh, this is so, but um, the white the white flight of the late fifties was, was sort of. Uh, uh, you know, spooking, if I may use this word, uh, those those owners. And uh, they decided, I'm getting the hell out of Dodge. I've read, you know, especially with um, Philadelphia, that's where a lot of people point to with uh, Shad Park in that mm-hmm. uh, I think it lasted – what was it till 1970 1971 maybe maybe six uh, maybe i'm a little off by a few years but in terms of veteran stadium open opening up uh Scheib park with a very similar changing neighborhood lasted right. well into the 60s uh yeah yeah no i mean the circumstances of why o'malley left was was, was fairly complicated uh, he, he says he wanted to build a dome stadium where uh, the Brooklyn Nets are playing right now on Atlantic Avenue. Uh, but when when the people from L.A. started descending uh, into his office and offering him, you know, a lot of land for almost no money, um, the business side, you know, of O'Malley took over. Um, he, he, you know, told everybody he couldn't stay in Brooklyn because uh, they wouldn't give him permission to build the uh, stadium that he wanted to build. But I'm, I'm not sure that that's true. I have a feeling when he saw how much money that he could make in Los Angeles, he was going to leave no matter what. So here's my question for you as a Yankee fan. And I actually mm-hmm. would like to go down – I would like to go down that rabbit hole a little bit more – Yankee-wise, specifically in terms of your <laughs> Dodger, you know, having researched the Dodgers. But specifically, I yeah. wonder sometimes whether O'Malley looked at Los Angeles 
and then looked at what he had in New York, regardless of the idea of the institution that basically connected, was basically the last vesting connection to Brooklyn as a city was the Brooklyn Dodgers, other than the street lamppost at the corner at the time when in 1957 when they left. The last remnants of their independence. Yeah. Ooh, you're right. The, the Brooklyn Navy Yard had, had closed down. Right. The Brooklyn Eagle had closed down. Eagle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Brooklyn was closing down. Uh, O'Malley's not looking to see so, so, whether he so was... So in terms of... So in terms of the Yankee angle, do you think that he looked at Los Angeles and said, I can own that city the way the Yankees own New York. I'm always going to have to compete with, you know, if, if, regardless of what happened to the Giants, let's say they stayed. I'll always no. have to compete for the eyeballs with two other teams and the Yankees, who are the biggest draw in sports. No, I don't think that had anything to do with it. I honestly don't. He, he he had his followers. The Yankee fans had their followers. Right. Uh, never never the twain should But he meet. could own Los Angeles. He could own Los Angeles the way the Yankees owned New York. Yeah. Without uh, any I, competition until the Angels came around. You'd, you'd have to ask him. I don't know. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, well said. So let, let's keep going with the Yankee angle. As somebody who experienced, you know, you, you you said you were seven years old in 54. It sounds like you were born in 47 when Jackie broke the color barrier. Um, so yeah, I, I, I was Yankee born in 46. Fan, yeah. Oh, 46, right. So, but you were, yeah. right, okay. So, uh, so, so just having met Jackie uh, and also coming up, to the, the, basically, like being a Yankee fan, what drew you back at 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 an, uh, you know somewhere in your adulthood to writing about the Brooklyn Dodgers? Well, because when you're a writer, um, you say to yourself after you've written book number five, you know. What would be a good topic for book number six? It's as simple as that. I, I've I've written basically one book a year since 1975. It's a lot of books. So you say, you know, <laughs> wh- why did you pick writing about the Brooklyn Dodgers? I picked it because um, I had a feeling that I could get a wonderful interview from Rachel Robinson, who was Jackie's wife, because. You know, my Uncle Justin was their lawyer, and it just seemed to me that nobody else had written uh, a history of the Dodgers. And it seemed to me, having written an oral history of the New York Yankees from 1949 to 1964, uh, that I would have an equally enjoyable um, time interviewing all of those Dodgers to go see Roy Campanella, interview Duke Snyder, and talk to Pee Wee Reese and, uh, you know, the Kirby Higbees and uh, Carl Erskins. And, you know, when I, when I interviewed Carl Ferrillo, I was at his house in Pennsylvania, and while we talked for that hour and 15 minutes, he had some giant parrot sitting on his shoulder. 
You know, this bird, my, this bird was about three feet tall, <laughs> and that bird just sat on his shoulder the entire time I was intervie- interviewing him. It was, it was, it was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. You know, the the experience of interviewing all of these people, and the joy of it is that uh, it was at a time when when almost all of them were still alive. Yeah. Jackie had died. Jackie had died, but almost everybody else was still living. And mm. I got to interview almost all of them, and it was wonderful. <laughs> you know the Carl the Carl Spooners of this world. Um, you know the Johnny Padreses. You know all these you know people who were gods to all the Brooklyn Dodger fans. I got to interview them all. It was wonderful. So would you say that you get uh, requested the most about this book? Do you think that, in, I mean, you said you've written basically one book a year since 1975. Mm-hmm. It seems yeah. like you get approached about the Bums book a lot, would you say? Well, there are certainly, that's certainly one of the most, you know, I, I, in baseball history, if, if you want to talk about the Brooklyn Dodgers, uh, people come to me to talk about Bums. Um there's going to be a fabulous at the, from the Brooklyn Public Library in March. They're going to have a fabulous event, and I'm going to have the you know the joy of being able to be part of that event. And I'm going to go and you know talk to the people at the Brooklyn Public Library about bums. But um, you know it, it depends on who your your loyalty is. For the Yankee fans, Dynasty, the Bronx Zoo, uh, number one that I did with Billy Martin. Um, you know, was big. Fenway was big for the for the Boston Red Sox fans. Wrigleyville for the Cubs fans. Spirit of St. Louis for the fans of the St. Louis Cardinals and Browns. Uh, I have a book that's just come out called Valentine's Way uh, that I wrote with Bobby Valentine, who was uh, the greatest athlete ever to come from Stanford, Connecticut. Uh, he 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 started with the Los Angeles Dodgers, then went to the Angels, and you know hurt himself terribly, and then then became a manager of of you know uh, the Texas Rangers and the Mets, and he went to Japan for nine years, where they named a street after him. I was going to call the book <laughs> Big Mouth, but I didn't call it Big Mouth because I'm 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 listening to him talk about his time in Japan. They named a street after him called Valentine's Way. And I thought, for crying out loud, that's what a great name for a book, Valentine's Way. You know, I interviewed, I had the opportunity to interview him for 40 hours. 40 hours. What a thrill that was for me. And it's a spectacular, spectacular book. You know, it's the the joy of what I do is meeting the people. Meeting these people is just, you know, I'm a very lucky man. I'm not sure if uh, Bobby told you this, but he's also the bubblegum champ of Shea Stadium in 1978. I have no doubt that he is. He was a ballroom. He was a ballroom dancing (laughs) champion. He was going to go do. He was going to go to the 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 World's Fair in in New York, and enter the ballroom dancing championship where he could have won five hundred dollars. But his high school baseball coach told him, if you win the $500, you may no longer be eligible to get a college scholarship. They may rule you as being a pro. So he didn't go, he didn't go to the ballroom dancing championships. 
Hey, you know, one's got to make a living. Like you gotta, you gotta well, choose your passion, basically. Well, he 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 did the smart. He did the smart thing. He he did the smart. He thing. did. Yeah. He did, and and Bobby Valentine actually, I believe, has a connection uh, through generations. Uh, to he certainly the has a connection. He has a connection, of course. Uh, he's in the Dominican Republic, and he's a young kid. He's there with Tommy Lasorda. And who walks in but this beautiful, beautiful blonde and her, turned out to be her mother. And he sees this woman, she's about 19, 20 years old, he's about 21, 22, and he sees this gorgeous girl and he says to her, you know, where are you staying? And she tells him where they're staying. So after the game, he goes to that hotel to meet her. And it turns out that she's Ralph Branca's daughter. And the mother is Ralph Branca's wife. And that was the connection that, that Bobby had to mm-hmm. to the Brooklyn Dodgers, yeah. And and it keeps but it keeps going too that Ralph married um I believe and that Dearing Deer, yes. Mulvey's daughter. That's right. That's exactly yeah. right. Yep. So, Ann Mulvey was her so name. There, yes. Right. So there, there. It's it's remarkable the way that uh, things come back around <laughs> yep. when it when it comes to storytelling. Um, no question so, about it. So let's let's talk a little bit. Obviously, you know, you like you told me, like, don't ask you exactly what Max Carey said in 1935. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> That's right. Uh, let's. So so. Let's start early on with the bum okay. real quick. Um, okay. What are some of your favorite anecdotes that you remember from, let's say, pre-Ebbets Field era? Uh, that, that's, that's just too crazy. I wrote this thing 45 years ago, <laughs> and I probably haven't picked it up, picked it up since then. Um, I, love the fact, I love the fact that, that they built this thing. That Ebbets built it. I mean, it, it was yeah. it was in a pretty pretty rotten part of town, and uh, you know the fact that he had you know faith in his baseball team to build this stadium where he built it. Um, you know these these guys, they were taking a chance. I mean, baseball was not the the big money uh, sport that it is today. I mean. Hmm. These are people who love the game too. Ebbets, Ebbets did. He built that ballpark. You know, and, as far as you know, anec- the way as far started. as anecdotes, I, I'm, I'm not. I can't tell you. You know, I didn't research the book before talking to you, so I, I'm, I can't give you, no, give you no, too many fine. anecdotes. The um, well, especially with the early stuff, it's of course you know you weren't able to talk to too many people uh, for the no. Book. It is very, very difficult. I can tell you, I can tell you categorically that it is extremely difficult to interview (laughs) dead people. Yes. (laughs) Yes, it's too bad. Uh, One day, one day. However, (laughs) however, there, there, there have been, there have been some wonderful books written around the turn of the century that which I, which I used. Uh, I I also went to. Yeah. 
No, no, I was just going to say that uh, I, I've just been in contact with John Zinn, John G. Zinn, who wrote a, a biography on, on Ebbets, uh, but to, uh-huh. to go down the, the Ebbets rabbit hole. Uh, but go ahead okay. with whatever you were about to say. No, I, I wasn't. I wasn't about to say anything very interesting. So tell tell me about <laughs> tell me about Mr. Zen. No, so so you were saying about Ebbets loving baseball, and, and that was basically his roots in the ball team was was uh, just being around basically. And That's just, right. Just loving the Dodgers and Brooklyn baseball so much yep. that he wanted to do whatever he could to stick around with the ball club. No question. I mean, the, 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 they had they before before the Jackie Robinson Dodgers. They had some fabulous, fabulous people. Casey Stengel for a while was the manager of the Dodgers, um, and he did some fairly quirky things. Um, he, he had found a bird that had knocked itself out, and he, he he took this little sparrow and put it under his ball cap, and he was he was somewhere, and they were booing him, and he took his hat off and the bird flew out of his hat and flew away, which is absolutely a hilarious thing. You know, you, you had at one point, remember he did that as uh, he was a, he was a pirate at that point. He had been traded. He was a, okay. Um, (laughs) You, you, you had, you had, you know, three Dodgers at one point landing on third base on a particular play, which was absolutely hysterical. Um, you had you had Wilbur Robinson, who I loved. I was particularly enamored with Wil- Wilbur Robinson. Uh, he had been yeah. he had been the coach with John McGraw, and they had gotten into a big fight at some point. And he left the Giants and became the manager of the Dodgers. Um, the Dodgers, if I remember correctly, won won the pennant in 1920. I think that's right. Yes. I think they may have also yes. won it in 1916. Uh, but they never mm-hmm. won the World Series. Um, never did win the World Series. Uh, and 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 the beauty, too, of their never winning the World Series was that um, they played in the World Series in 1941, and they lost that particular World Series because of a wild pitch that allowed the Yankees to get on base and win the game. Uh, a pass ball, actually. Uh, Hugh Casey Hugh threw a spitball. He threw a spitball that the catcher didn't catch, and and uh, the batter gets to first base, and then DiMaggio gets a hit, and Bill Dickey gets a hit, and the Yankees end up winning the game in the World Series. So it's as though the the Dodgers were really jinxed when it came to winning the World Series. Um, they they lost in in '47, they lost in '49, they lost to the Yankees in '52, they lost to the Yankees in '53. And 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 what is so so really sort of horrible in a way is is that Johnny Padres pitched the Dodgers to the victory over the Yankees in 1955 in that final game. It was a two to nothing win. Sandy Amaros made an incredible catch in left field over a, a fly ball that Yogi Berra hit to the opposite field. And when that happened. The people who lived in Brooklyn rejoiced as though they had never rejoiced before. They they felt joy, you know, you know, we're not bums any longer. We are the world's championships. And, who's and the so bum? what yeah, who's the bum? 
And so what really makes it sad, they went to the World Series once again in 1956. This time, Larson pitched his perfect game, and the Yankees ended up winning. Uh, <laughs> the Dodgers lost the final game 9 to nothing. Moose Garwin hit a grand slam home run. And then, then, then after the 57 season, O'Malley picks the team up and they leave, which is, I, I mean, I still talk to people who have never forgiven him for it. You know, look at the last the last sentences of Bums. You know, who are the three worst people in world history? You know, it was Adolf Hitler, Mussolini, and Walter O'Malley. And for Brooklyn fans, that's not a joke. That's not funny. That's true. You're right. They took the heart. They literally took the heart right out of Brooklyn. Well, the, yeah, the the, pun, the punchline was, who do you shoot if you only have two billets? And it's Walter O'Malley twice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. No. And, I, you know, I'm, I, as a screenwriter, even though you do have the angle that he's arguably the villain of the entire series, uh, at the same time, you have to start building that villain in a very humane way. And especially when you talk to certain Dodgers, and we, the most prolific guest we've had is Carl, Carl Erskine. Oh, of course. Um, of course he is. He, he's he's, he he's has, about the last one left. Yeah. And, Carl, and Carl just still, turned 94, he's I think. fantastic. Absolutely. Oh, okay. Ninety-five, and he and he's All right. he's he's talking circles around me. Uh, oh but yeah. He he talks so wonderfully about Walter O'Malley, uh, and, and tells the story about how on opening day, he, you know, missed the first pitch in Dodger Stadium just to take uh, uh, Carl's son Jimmy around. Um, that that was the one that was the story that always stuck with me the most that you should try to explore this fellow on more than just that one black and white note if you will and and but i get where dodger fans come from yeah i, I don't care i don't care if he was donating millions to the jimmy fan fund if i'm a dodger <laughs> fan i hate this guy's guts I don't care that he was taking Carl Erskine's son around. That doesn't mean a damn thing to me. All I know is he took the Dodgers out of Brooklyn, and that's, you know, that's the terrible. See, the other thing that he did, the other thing O'Malley did, is at one point there were three people owning the Brooklyn Dodgers when they bought them in the early 40s. It was Branch Rickey, yeah. Walter O'Malley, and a fellow by the name of Smith. And what happened, of course, is that Smith died, and O'Malley went to Smith's widow and bought all of Smith's stock, which then made him the, uh, you know, the majority owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers. So what did O'Malley do, of course, is he got rid of Ricky. And Ricky, you have to understand, was the smartest, most important baseball executive in the history of the game of baseball. Ricky goes all the way back to the St. Louis Browns in the teens. And he was very successful there. And he goes then to the St. Louis Cardinals where he starts the farm system. I mean, his brilliance in how he did that with farm, they had, you know, 30 different farm teams. And, and he knew you sign these kids cheap and somebody's going to be great. 
And that's what happened. You know, he, he uh, Kennesaw Mountain Landis absolutely hated him, hated Ricky. He hated Ricky for a couple of reasons. Landis, of course, was a miserable racist, you know, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and he did everything he could to keep African-Americans out of baseball. It was only because Kennesaw Mountain Landis died that Ricky was able to do what he was able to do. But but after after um, O'Malley uh, became the majority owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers, he got rid of Ricky. He couldn't stand the fact that Ricky got so much credit for bringing up Jackie Robinson. I mean, O'Malley would tell people that he was the one who brought up Jackie Robinson, which was a lie, of course. It wasn't true at all. But that's how that's how jealous O'Malley was of of, of Ricky. And so, you know, that's the other question, aspect. Question of, for you. Yeah. Have you ever seen uh, the? Uh, I think it was like the 1948 Brooklyn Dodger football team uh, press junket or, or whatever. I guess it might have been just some game uh, uh, program. But it has a photo. Uh, yep. This was this was Branch Rickey's like big thing uh, in his later years. He was trying to do this reincarnation of the Brooklyn football Dodgers. And, okay, yep. Uh, on the cover is Branch Rickey, like some of the football people, like a coach as well as a player, and then right. Peter O'Malley as a kid, and then Peter O'Malley okay. as a kid. <laughs> okay. Which I That's always nice. thought was an ironic – I thought it was such an ironic photo because uh-huh. it ends up be, it ends up basically being the dagger in Branch Rickey's Dodger heart. Is yeah, that football. That's true. As, as, you know. That 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 was the last straw in terms of Walter O'Malley selling to the board. Even that this guy, not only with his whole ten percent of every player fee, uh, yeah. he also bleeds us dry all these other ways, including the football, this new football team that didn't work out. Uh, that's that's all very interesting. This is all information that I have no knowledge of. I don't know anything about um, – I, I really know nothing about uh, uh, Ricky and the football team except that that was his baby. And and it makes sense right. to me that it was something that uh, O'Malley probably resented, A, because it was Ricky doing it, and B, because it probably wasn't making any money. O'Malley was a guy – understand so, who O'Malley was. O'Malley was a guy yeah. – who would throw people out of their homes uh, if if they were uh, if they didn't pay the mortgage and were subject to eviction? You know, that, that's what right. he did. He he was the lawyer who threw people out of their homes. Right, and and right now I'm just building him as a thirty-something-year-old under George McLaughlin's uh, wing before that's right. he puts him. Before he puts him onto the Dodger account in nineteen. That's right. Was at it, the was end of nineteen thirty nine. Was it? Was his name George? Was it George? George George the fifth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. George. That's the right. Fifth, George V. McLaughlin. That's right. Yep. And 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 an interesting and so thing too. Yeah. Let, let me tell you. Later on, he ends up stabbing McLaughlin in the back. You'll see as you read as you read further, which is interesting. Right. And, and you know. 
I, I have to, I think I know what you're talking about. And I have to look, uh, I have to see exactly how, I, I don't, um, it's vague, vague where that was specifically in what I'm reading, but I, cause I, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm reading all over right now, but you're right that there is something interesting, it, but that's, that's the way it works. I mean, like, even if you w- watch like Mad Men, you know, well, these guys see, listen, are, it's a this friendly is, this competition. This is the way, this is the way it works if you're a heartless, um, what was what was the movie greed where they said greed is good wall street greed is good greed Greed is is good good. this is this is how it works if you're one of those kind of people and o'malley was one of those kind of people he was i mean he had no problem he had no problem um you know being disloyal to people you know to 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 doing whatever he had to do to get his way. So here's my question. So to segue, what okay. as as a Yankee fan, um, uh, for all, so so it just if you can remind me, you're you're uh, you're born in Stanford, Connecticut, correct? And you said you were born in Manhattan, but you grew up in Stanford, Connecticut. That's so correct. So what 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 was your parents? fandom if if your mother as well as your father where were they in terms of their how they were raised baseball wise and as a and and how did that lead to the yankees for you as far as i could see they had no interest whatsoever okay <laughs> so so how so what specifically led you to the yankees just the vicinity, Stanford, Connecticut, being relatively I can tell close you to the what led me. I can tell you what led me to the Yankees, aside from the fact that the New Haven, the Hartford, New New, ha- New York, New Haven, and Hartford Railroad. You get on in Stanford. You take it to 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 uh, Grand Central Station. You get on the Lex and you take it up to the stadium. So, except for that, the reason that I was a Yankee fan was. In 1955, the Yankees won the pennant. In 1956, the Yankees won the pennant. In 1957, the Yankees won the pennant. In 1958, the Yankees won the pennant. In 1960, the Yankees won the pennant. In 1961, the Yankees won the pennant. In 1962, the Yankees won the pennant. In 1963, the Yankees won the pennant. In 1964, the Yankees won the pennant. (laughs) Who are you going to root for? Tell me. Who are you going to root for? The Mets. <laughs> yeah. Right. Sure. I and this is but this is this is me talking as a converted Mets fan. So what, what are you converted from? What are you converted from? Converted from what? Season tickets. Season tickets from ninety nine to two thousand one for the Yankees. <laughs> oh wow! Oh wow! Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. So, well, exactly. But I think it was both the roots, my 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 uncle being a Giants fan, my family being Mets fans, uh, as well as my fascination with the National League side of things. So, okay. What did so your perception of the National League side of New York 
coming into single digits as, as you came into consciousness when you said yeah. that, that that memory the the first memory was Willie Mays. What, well, what, right. what other than that? What what was your perception of the Dodgers and the Giants before they left? I I, I would watch uh, the Giants and the Dodgers on TV on Channel Nine. Um, often. I never once went to Ebbets Field. Uh, the only time I went to the Polo Grounds was when the when the Mets played their first couple of seasons at the Polo Grounds, and I went there to see the Mets play. Yeah. And I have to tell you, I adored the Polo Grounds. I thought it was a magnificent, magnificent ballpark, and I was really, really huh. upset when they left it. It was a beautiful, beautiful stadium. It was built somewhere around 1914, 1915, something like that. And it was the Coliseum of ballparks. It was utterly fantastic. Uh, but obviously it had gotten old, and they decided uh, that they, they wanted something new. And uh, they, 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 they went to Shea Stadium. Do you think it was better for football uh, than baseball specifically? Just because of that weird shape? Uh, once again, I have no idea. I have not a clue. <laughs> you just, you just remember. Really, you, you just remember. When I went to the Giants, the New York Giants football games, we'd go to Yankee Stadium. They played in Yankee Stadium that I remember. <laughs> right. Yes, they did. Yes, that's right. I mean, the greatest football, the, what was it, the greatest game ever? Uh, the greatest game ever, Giants... 1958, Giants against the right. against the Baltimore Colts. That was the game. United it was. United. United. Yeah. So, so the, Gi- the Giants lost that game, right? Yeah, they did. Sons of a gun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've never never forgiven them. It's I've never. Think. Uh, yeah, yeah, it does. <laughs> I've never forgiven Bill Mazarowski either. So it's it's all right. So talk about that. You know, let's go down that rabbit hole. Why not? Uh, the 1960 New York Yankees. What are your memories of that series, that season? Just anything that pops into your mind, uh, you know, regardless well, I mean, it's of whether I, I, I am, I, I, you know. You know, I interviewed every single one of the players who played in that series. So, and that, that was a lot of fun, huh. uh, you know, to do that, you know, to, to interview Ralph Carey who gave up the home run to Mazeroski to lose the goddamn thing. Uh, and then he comes back. He comes back um, to pitch a magnificent game, you know, to win a series. You know, and to hear him talk about how he went from the depths to the heights, uh, it's, it's a beautiful story. It's just terrific. I mean, I remember watching that last game when Mazeroski hit that thing. You know who was in left field? Yogi Berra. Yogi didn't didn't move. He just stood there as that ball went over his head and over the wall. And that was it. It was over. It's remarkable that you interviewed everybody. Was there, yeah. you know, for some of those Yankees, like Yogi Berra, who uh-huh. ironically, uh, you know, for Yogi Berra, who is the all-time World Series winner, if you want to look at it like yes. that. Um, yep. <laughs> yeah. So 
it's ironic that that ball sails over his head with him so tied to catching. He's out there uh, in, in, you know, in the, in the outfield. So uh, was there any, to, to anybody regarding that series, having won so many world championships, was there any, like, eh, you know, we've won so many, that'll, that's okay. Was there yeah, any, you gotta, not, not necessarily, you gotta, not necessarily you, in the way they play. Sam, Sam, you got to be kidding me. No, no, there was <laughs> no, no, that's not the way these people work. No, no, they wanted to win every single one. Come on. Yeah, exactly. No, you're absolutely right. So you, you mentioned 58. They lost the one in 58. No, they right. won in 58. They lost in 57. They won, They beat no, the Milwaukee uh, Braves in 58. Yeah, they lost in 57. But, but they lost in 57 to the Braves, right? Yeah, correct, to the Braves. That was Spahn so and Burdett. So then they had some vengeance against uh, Henry Aaron and the boys. Well, I guess you could call it that. They were down They were down 3-1, to one and they, lo- they won the last three games in order to win that thing. Wow. Which is pretty damn good. Uh, yeah. It's it's great. And and so yeah. ironic, too, uh, with the bums, that Brooklyn takes 70-something years to win a world championship, and L.A. gets yeah. it in two. Yeah, I know. I know it. And, and, <laughs> and the Brooklyn Dodger fans who I interviewed, when those Dodgers won those, you know, pennants, they had such mixed feelings about it. You know, those were, they were still, for a lot of these people, those were their boys, you know. And yet, they weren't their boys. They were Los Angeles' boys. And it just... Do you think uh, that, that Sandy, do you think that Sandy Koufax helped connect, like keep some of the Dodger fans uh, folded in? Uh, more yeah, than some others, you know. Sandy, Sandy didn't do squat when he was a Brooklyn Dodger, so no, I yeah, don't right. think <laughs> I don't think he had he had any connection. No, but his Sandy, conne- but his connection to Brooklyn, I mean, like like the fact yeah, that Sandy Koufax became uh, what he was. No more, no more or less than anybody else, you know. And it was so funny because interesting. Once they, yeah, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, uh, most of those Brooklyn Dodger players faded away once they went to Los Angeles. Um, right. You know, uh, Carl Farillo ended up coming back to New York and working on the World Trade Center. World Trade Center. Uh, Roy Campanella. <laughs> uh, Roy Campanella ended up breaking his neck driving home from his uh, his uh, his store. Yeah, in January. That that was horrible. You know. Pee Wee, I don't think he played very much for for Los Angeles. Um, you know, they got a whole new cast of guys. Uh, Drysdale and Koufax starred. Um, so, what what I've what I've noticed in my interviews is that mm-hmm. it seems Willie Willie. So so it, you know Brooklyn, the Brooklyn fans, especially because of how popular they were when Walter O'Malley left felt very slighted by Walter O'Malley. Whereas the Giants fan, you know, over the course of the 20 years 
that I am looking at, the Dodgers did much better than the Giants, it bar, bar none. And the Giants generally didn't draw the same way. But what, what seemed to keep Giants fans involved who weren't going to the stadium and who kept yeah. them involved, who, what kept them involved after the Giants left for San Francisco was Willie right. Mays. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. Sure. Sandy, San, Sandy Koufax didn't seem to have the same power because no. Walter O'Malley was an SOB. Well, pitchers don't have the same power anyway. You know, Willie Good Mays point. played every single day. And Willie Mays was one of the five or six greatest center fielders in the history of the game of baseball. Willie Mays was a force. Sandy pitched every, you know, four days. And and when he was in Brooklyn, didn't pitch very much at all. You look at his record, he didn't do all that much. So when he yeah. went out to Los Angeles, he was Los Angeles' Sandy Koufax, not theirs. But Willie Mays, but he's hey, from one of the smartest... One of the smartest things Willie Mays ever did, or one, I'm sorry, one of the smartest things the Mets ever did was to get Willie Mays to come play for for, for them at the end of his career. That was interesting because every, everybody was talking <laughs> about, oh, he, he, you know, he's lost a step, he can't play the game anymore, that sort of thing. When I did my book Amazing and interviewed those teammates of Willie Mays, they all said the same thing. <laughs> this guy was the best baseball player on the team. You know, and he was you know 39 <laughs> years old on the way out, so you could just imagine. He was in his 40s. I'm, I, yeah, I, I, he was in his 40s. He, I'm pretty sure. He may he may well have been. Yeah, he may well have been. Yeah. I mm-hmm. as a Mets fan, I I am yep. so proud that I get to look at a few Brooklyn. Uh, I'm I'm sorry, uh, not Brooklyn. I I'm so proud that I get to look at a few Willie Mays. Uh, Met uniform uh, trading cards, <laughs> you know. Oh yeah, I, like definitely. It's just it's so it's it's such a special, and it's unfortunate that they lost that World Series. Uh, right. That he was involved in and has and has that That's famous right. uh, when 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 it, you know I think Buddy Harrelson might have been safe. I think it was Buddy Harrelson sli- uh, not sliding. <laughs> Nobody slid it during that play. But you know what I'm talking right. about, where Willie Mays yes, was like, are you kidding? And I yeah. think he, he still may have been safe. He, he's, he's, he's safe in the minds of Mets fans everywhere. Yes, he is. <laughs> but that's not going to do, do you much good, unfortunately. No, I no. know. No, what's going to do us good is if – what's going to do us good is if this baseball uh, uh, people can get their act together to give us baseball in 2022. That well, would be, you've got uh, delightful. You know, you, you know my Bobby Valentine book. A lot of it is about the Mets when he was the manager of the Mets. Yeah. And 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 any, any of you Mets fans out there who care at all about the Mets will eat this book up because it's absolutely fascinating as to you know all the things that happened during the four or five years that he was there. Um, why people got traded? Why why people got fired? Why why they didn't win? Um, uh Bobby wanted Bobby had had uh, managed in uh uh in Japan and he was he was screaming at the general manager you got to get Ichiro you got to sign this guy Ichiro he's an absolutely fabulous player and the GM comes back to him and says I don't need another singles hitter who needs another singles hitter 
And of course, Ichiro turns out to be, you know, one of the greatest baseball players who ever lived. Uh, and 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 you know, the the thing about Bobby is that he was always right. And and that doesn't make for good relationships with with general managers, if you know what I mean. Um you know, you, you or an entire Boston franchise. <laughs> well, the Boston franchise, that's an entirely other that's a whole the chapter on Boston is utterly fascinating because Bobby <laughs> in a way Bobby got himself uh sort of trapped. He had a two year contract yeah. and he was told that whatever happens in the first year, don't worry about it. And they were actually a five hundred hmm. team come August when the general manager traded away the three best hitters on the Boston Red Sox team. Right. And I think they finished the season something like, you know, five and 20. Uh, no, and, yeah, and, they, they lost uh, 90 games that year, unfortunately. And, and, and the interesting thing was the whole time the general manager was saying to Bobby, don't worry about it. We'll put it back together again next year. And the irony, of course, is they fired him and they put it back together again the next year, and they won the, right. won the pennant. So so if you want to read some really, really interesting behind-the-scenes, you know, stuff that went on, Valentine's Way is something that you're really, really, really going to enjoy. Everybody, you got, <clears throat> excuse me, you got to go get Valentine's Way. By Peter Golenbach. and yeah, you can get uh, it on you, Amazon you co- right you now. You co-wrote it. You co-wrote it with. Uh, no, Bobby I wrote Valentine? it. He 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 talked it and I wrote, wrote it. it. Yeah, he talked <laughs> it. I wrote it. <laughs> but I guarantee you, uh, you know that the, the purpose of a book is you start on page one and you get to page two, you will not be able to put this thing down. I promise you. I absolutely promise oh, you. He's one right. of the most interesting people. And I've been doing this a lot of years. He's one of the most interesting people that I've ever run across. The guy is absolutely brilliant, and he's fascinating. I very much hope to meet Bobby Valentine one day. He has been uh, a very much uh, one of my favorites uh, among, you know, even when I was, when during his era of Mets time, I was a Yankee fan. Uh-huh. But oh, yeah. Right. I loved the fact that I got to root for two baseball teams. Well, time. you got to play against weird. them in the 2000 World Series. And, and But it's a weird memory to have at game one, right behind uh-huh. home plate, more or yeah. Like up, up in the upper, upper deck right behind home plate. Uh, wow. As a Yankee fan at the time, but now yeah. as a Mets fan, it's mm-hmm. a remarkable memory to have considering that now it's just like, what are you walking Paul O'Neill for? <laughs> like, in the, in the, you know, in the retrospective of it. Um, sure. And in Jose Vizcaino and, and just, and the, but like, I, wa- I was at that game, but I would argue that the next game was the more pivotal game because the Mets can still win that series. Yeah. If it's not necessarily for, I mean, other, basically, the Mets can win that series if it wasn't for Derek Jeter and the home run at to start game game four. Absolutely, absolutely right. Now we're going all over the place. Now we're going all. Now over we the place are. We're going all today. over the place. But I will tell you what, that's that's, <laughs> Not, that's some 
some great <laughs> baseball right there. Some great, great baseball. Great. Um, you know. Yeah. So, so uh, let me reset since we're coming up to 9 p.m. You are listening Uh-oh. to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. We are talking to Peter Golenbach, author of Bums and Oral History on the Brooklyn Dodgers. You know, oh, 9 o'clock, right? Right on, on time there, the chime. Uh, so, Peter, there's so much we haven't talked about, but here's where I want to go before we start uh-huh. however long we're going to go. And I have a feeling – uh, you and I could go a long time, but we're, we'll, we'll, we'll take it easy. One way or another, I want to start with Ernest Hemingway. Your okay. book was the first time that I ever heard that story. And it's, <laughs> it, it, it's just, let's, I, I would like you for all that uh, are listening that don't know, which could be yeah. a lot. Why don't you start from the beginning, even if you haven't read that story in a long time. But but whatever you remember of it, whatever you know of it, whatever you remember of talking to Kirby Higby at the time. Uh-huh. Um, here's here's what about, I can about, tell you. <laughs> uh, like, like, well, but before you start, about yep. like, like wherever you can go about Kirby Higby, Hugh Casey, and that entire story. Well, Ernest Hemingway in addition to be a, being a fisherman and and one of the greatest writers in American history, loved baseball. And the Dodgers were in Cuba because of Robinson. Um, rather than going into the South, uh, they, they did their spring training in Cuba this particular year. And on this one particular day, Kirby Higby and, and uh, Hugh Casey went over to Hemingway's home. And uh, they had some drinks, and then they had a few more drinks, and then they had a few more drinks. And uh, Hemingway said to you, Casey, <laughs> let's, let's box. He had boxing gloves. So he puts on boxing gloves, and you, Casey, puts on boxing gloves. And and Hemingway actually slugs you Casey in the face, and you Casey then took a swing at Hemingway, sent him over the couch into the wall, smashed up the whole room, and that was that was basically the end of the fight. Uh, but the thought, you know, that these guys would do something like that absolutely cracked me up. It's just it's just hilarious. Yes. One of my yep. one of my favorite part of the one of my favorite part of the story too is that uh, Hemingway's wife like pops out for a second <laughs> yes. after yes. hearing the commotion and just yes. looks around and just without without saying anything goes back inside like that's right oh it's it's one of those I know <laughs> yeah <laughs> absolutely this is what we're dealing with tonight. And then another thing that I loved, and it's just like to everybody out there, I am obviously writing, going to write this for, this would be season two of my, of my arc. If I were ever so lucky to make it to a season two, but uh, he, um, the next day, Ernest Hemingway sobered up at the ballpark or wherever they saw the, the two the next day was yep. very apologetic 
and was just like and and like to me like I can just see it from both an actor's perspective as well as as a, a screenwriter of him he says apparently in your book it's just like he says I I don't know what came over me <laughs> like, like, like this has never happened before Ernest. yeah right I know it I know it um, you know sadly sadly you Casey uh, ended up right. committing suicide. Um, Kirby, I had this fabulous, fabulous interview with Kirby Higby. I have to tell you, come March, I have a book coming out called Whispers of the Gods. Uh, you know the mm. book, The Glory of Their Times, which was so marvelous. And mm. Glory of the Times had interviews with the ball players who played in the 1910s and the 1920s, mm. teammates of Ty Cobb, teammates of, of Babe Ruth. Hmm. Whispers I, of the I Gods. Oh, you don't know it? Then, then no, ABE books it. You got to get yourself a copy, otherwise <laughs> you will n- you will not be you will not be baseball knowledgeable if you don't read the glory yeah. of their times. I'm telling you. So this, I've I've just written a sequel to it called Whispers of the Gods, and it's coming out in March, and it's 17 of the interviews I did with. Kirby Higby is certainly one of them. Roy Campanella is another one. Roger Maris, Monty Irvin, Ron Santo, Phil Rizzuto, Ted Williams, Jim Brosnan, Stan Musial, Rex Barney, which is a wonderful interview, Marty Marion, and my closest friend, Jim Bowden. And this is, this is coming in March, called Whispers of the Gods. It's the sequel to The Glory of the Times, which you don't know about. But you'd better get yourself a copy in tomorrow and edu- educate yourself about it. I will. I'll make sure tomorrow I'll get a copy. Okay. And, Good. and everybody out there needs to get a copy of both this as well as Whisper of the Gods coming in March. Fantastic. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, thinking about where to go next, uh, but where do you want to go next, Peter? Uh, where do I want to go next? I want to go to the refrigerator and get myself some dessert. <laughs> I think that's a good idea. So, um, so, so, I. What is your favorite baseball memory from having been to a game? Before we, before we, you know, get to the the end of the podcast, I'm very curious about that. That's a, that's a wonderful question. You know, nobody nobody has ever asked me that question. And 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 well, you know, I can tell you my favorite baseball memory was while I was doing Dynasty, I had the opportunity to interview Mickey Mantle, who was my other hero beside Jackie. And I had called him and he said, "Come over to my house in Dallas and I'll talk to you there." So I fly to Dallas and I get on the horn on the on the phone, and I call, and his wife answers, and she says to me, "Mickey is in New York." <laughs> so, oh, right. <laughs> so I get, I get on the plane, I fly to New York, and the next day, meet with Mickey in the Yankee clubhouse. This is this is for Dynasty. <laughs> so there's Mickey wearing that you know that Western wear stuff that he wore with the fringes and all, and I was. For the first time in my life, too awestruck to go up to him. 
So I went over to Ellie Howard, who I had already interviewed, and I said, Ellie, would you do me a favor? Would you introduce me to Mickey? And he goes, ah, sure, no problem. So he walks me over to Mickey. He says, Mickey, this is Peter Golenbach. He's doing the book on the Yankees. And Mickey says, hi. And I said, Mick, do you mind if I ask you a few questions? And Mickey looks at me in the eye and he goes, no. <laughs> and then he starts <laughs> laughing. He starts laughing uproariously. He did. started laughing uproariously. And we then talked for about an hour and 15 minutes, one of the great conversations that I've had you know, since doing this. Where he, this was 1973. In 1968, he had retired. After the 68 season, he had retired. And he's basically telling me how much he misses baseball, mm-hmm. how his life is so empty without it. What year and, was this? And he, 1973. You're, in, you're and he, interviewing him in 1973. That's correct. And he's telling okay. me about the nightmares that he has, which are unbelievable. Mm-hmm. He had never told anybody about his nightmares. He's standing outside Yankee Stadium, and the PR announcer's going, now batting in the third position, number seven, Mickey Mantle. And in his nightmare, Mickey is standing outside Yankee Stadium, and he can't find the door to get into the stadium to go to the clubhouse. And he wakes up in this sweat, and he's telling me, you know, it's just so tough. And uh, I've loved the guy ever since, ever since. I mean, here's the most famous baseball player that I can remember. And and he was a guy, Mickey was a guy who couldn't understand why people loved him so much. He just didn't get it. I mean, he had been abused by his father when he was a kid. In a way, Casey Stengel abused him when he was a player because Casey felt that if I'm always criticizing the guy, he's going to play harder which is probably true. But, you know, for instance, uh, uh, a reporter comes and says to Casey, who's the best baseball player you've ever managed? And he's saying this in front of Mickey, and Casey goes, Joe DiMaggio. It's like, you know, come on. Um, So Mickey had that from his father and had that from Stengel, and he just never had a tremendous amount of feeling of self-worth. And it's just right. sadden the sadden the hell out of me. For somebody who's yeah, like one of the most Oh yeah godlike. It was like you know, people. I I don't think there was ever another athlete so adored since Babe Ruth than Mickey Mantle. Yeah. Think about yeah, it. Yeah, you're probably right. No, and, and so I'm I'm wondering too. I mean, it's beautiful the moment uh, of it, the way it humanizes, <clears throat> the way certain parts of Mickey humanize them so much. Just even the way he unfortunately passed, and and his alcoholism, and mm-hmm. all of these different things that that. Uh, bring us back to that, and and it's yep. it's such a beauty. The way the fact that that was your response to to your because mo- I asked it on the guys of on the field, mm-hmm. and that's what makes it even more beautiful. Your response, you know, I I ended up 
I ended up after Mickey died. Mickey died in 1995, and and you know I've I've read you know books about Mickey, and and I never felt that people really captured who he really was, and so you know somewhere in the 2000s I wrote a book called Seven, the number seven, which was a novel. It was it was Mickey's Mantle's autobiography as spoken by Mickey Mantle, as though he and I had written this thing. And if you want to know what Mickey was really all, really like, like what he really was like, find seven. You know, go to ABE Books, spend two bucks, and find my novel seven. That'll tell you exactly who Mickey Mantle was. And And he was just... Like I said, I, I always felt so bad for him because he always felt so bad for himself. Well, so how old was he when he uh, retired? He was born in 30, so he was 38 when he retired. And he died in 95, so <laughs> he was 60, 65 and, when he died. Right. Right, and and sixty eight sixty eight was his last season, so thirty eight. Right. I mean, you know, which yeah. technically technically would be for anybody else the like at that at that time that was actually pretty great for any ball player, even some Hall of Famers. But um, right, what right, separates but, but, you know, what, separ- what separates it for Mantle is the the knee issue. Well, among other things, I interviewed these other players who were his teammates, and they told me he was bandaged from head to toe, start from his shoulder and go all the way down to his to his ankles before the game. That's how he had to be. You know, the, the sad thing is Mickey always saw himself as a 300 hitter, and and I think in 1968 he hit 233, and as a result of that, his batting average dropped to a lifetime of 298, and it always bothered him. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, at some point you have to you have to get over that. But uh, I you mean, don't have he, to. You don't have to. Yeah, I guess you don't have you don't have to. <laughs> you don't have to. <laughs> you uh, you I, might uh, you get know. over it. I'm, you might get I'm over only, it. I'm only I'm only like like I'm only trying to like. Yeah, maybe there's certain things. Maybe I'm I'm talking about certain things that have happened to me over the last few years that I'm just like you know needing to get over. But <laughs> I, I think that I'm not I'm not going to ask that, you what those are. <laughs> right, it's your show. I'm not going to ask on, you what the, those are. Though, public, though I am uh, curious right now. I but one curious. one what? day one day that's a separate podcast that doesn't involve the story of Brooklyn and its ball club. Um, okay. So, <laughs> Peter, as we as we uh, wrap up the show, uh, first of all, thank you so much for being on. It, it's been such a an amazing pleasure. I, I, so, uh, before we we completely uh, wrap this thing up, my curious uh, thing is the way that the publishing has developed because I, I saw that it, it seemed like. It, it's been reissued uh, at like about four times, if that's correct. Yeah, yeah, they keep they keep they keep bringing it out. I got I got a bunch of books out that they they just keep keep coming, which is which is fine. 
they they have they have uh, books on Kindle. Why why you'd want to read a book on Kindle? I have no idea. But most of my books are on Kindle. Uh, you can get my Red Sox book Fenway on audio books if you want to hear me spend four hours talking about the Red Sox. Um, but yeah, I mean. Uh, the thrilling part of it is, 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 is people still care about these books, and it's, uh, it gives me great joy. It gives us great joy. Uh, I like the fact that even though I may not end up using cursing, like I, I keep billing it uh, my TV series as an HBO-style TV series, but you also have to, you know, think about just the, the subject matter itself. But I really did appreciate that you didn't uh, mince anything, <laughs> if you will. Um, well, I'm, not a min- I'm, not a, I'm not a mincer. <laughs> right. I'm, you're, you're not I'm, not very, you're not I'm not very – you're not mincer. You're more of a chopper. I'm not but... <laughs> yeah, I'm not very political. <laughs> you but, ask but, me a question, I'll you, give you an answer. But you, you didn't leave out the cursing. Like if that was a part – like the Kirby Higby stuff, for instance. You know, uh-huh. if if that was a part of the way that the story needed to be told, you told it in the reality, whether or not you're talking about a baseball team that is generally viewed as a family uh, affair. Well, if you had said to me, this is a family podcast, I certainly would have done that. But you didn't tell <laughs> me that. So, yeah, <laughs> no, it's just, and in no way. Uh, did that need to be prefaced? <laughs> so we 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 like to uh, we like to say on this uh, the final word. Uh, first of all, Peter, again, thank you, uh, and I'll My go pleasure. right to you since it's just been you and me on the podcast yeah. tonight. And, and we give we give a big shout out to the Brooklyn Trolley blogger Mike Lacolant, who unfortunately could not join us this evening. Uh, oh, uh, but oh, what a shame! Uh, yeah. Right, and and such a great name for uh, the Brooklyn Trolley blogger, you know, changing it There you go, yes. (laughs) Very good. And one day, (laughs) I think one day a team, a baseball team or a sports team is going to be known as the blogger. So he may actually have gotten ahead of of the uh, nickname game, if you will. But uh, (laughs) so I'm going to go to you, Peter, for your final word after that little tangent right there. You you want a final word? The final, the final word, word is let's 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 all keep our fingers and toes crossed that the major league baseball owners aren't so stupid as to make this season shorter because they're locking out the the millionaire baseball players who are are looking for a fair share of the money. Um, you know. You got the billionaires and the millionaires, and and these people need to think a little bit about the fans, which of course they never do. Uh, but this time, you know, baseball is a little shaky. You know, COVID has made it so that for one year nobody went to the games. But now the thing is relenting. Uh, all the baseball fans are dying to to go into the ballparks and see these guys play. Uh, you know, let's cut the crap and, 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 and make a deal and get the season underway. Here, here. <laughs> I, I champion everything that you were saying. 
and uh, I, I hope that we hear some good news soon uh, because, of course, the National League baseball fan of New York is going to think that they are just doing it so we don't get to see DeGrom and Scherzer pitch this year. Uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> that, that's our show, folks. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you for listening to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. Thank you so much to Bums, an oral history of the Brooklyn Dodgers author, Peter Golenbach, for joining us this evening. And uh, you're always welcome anytime to come back on the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. Thank you, Peter. My pleasure. I enjoyed it immensely. And thank you all out there again for listening to the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. Take care.